I need hardly say what it was like, but if hell is like a battlefield, then God help the sinner. Lance Corporal Marshall, 11th Battalion, East Lancashire Regiment, the Accrington Pals, Sare, the Somme, 1st July, 1916. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast episode 8, Psalm, the 1st of July, 1916, part 2, Free Corps to Gom Again, that intro you just heard is from the 1st of July, 2016 Remembrance Project called We Are Here that took place all across Great Britain. This was the project put together by British artist Jeremy Deller that featured groups of men in World War I uniforms walking simply and silently through the cities of the UK. These men just passed through train stations, malls, and the like, like ghosts, saying nothing, only handing out a white card when asked by passers-by. These cards contained the name of a soldier killed on the 1st of July, 1916, and each man represented a soldier lost on that day. Really powerful stuff. Um, Real quick admin notes before we get started. Uh, Last episode, I mentioned a book titled When the Barrage Lifts, and I mentioned the author as Gerald Gladden. The author's name is actually Gerald Glidden, not Gladden. Verdumpte autocorrect. Man, sometimes. Also, many, many thanks to the many listeners who have reviewed the podcast on iTunes and donated to both the Battle of Verdun podcast and the Battles of the First World War podcast. I am humbled by your generosity, and immensely thankful. I really enjoy reading the reviews, as well as messaging back and forth with folks out there on World War I-related books, websites, and resources. Thanks to listener Clint, I now know just how imperative it is that I read Eric Maria Remark's follow-on works to All Quiet on the Western Front. Thanks, man. And last admin note, here is a quick lesson in uh, a few landforms and how to visualize them. So here's what you need to do. Make a fist and look at it, making sure the front part of your fist faces you directly. Got it? Okay. So your knuckles are hills, and all your knuckles together make a ridgeline. The fingers extending down from your knuckles are what's called spurs, which are ridges that jut out from high ground as that ground heads towards a valley. 
the depressions between your fingers are what are called draws, the low ground between two spurs on a hillside. For the Somme, we can also think of these draws as the valleys that will be named shortly. Verstehen? Verstanden. All right, back to the battlefield. North of Fricourt, with the British 21st Division, along with elements of the British 50th Division, were putting the squeeze on that ruined village's German defenders, lay La Boisselle. North of La Boisselle lay Ouvier La Boisselle. As we discussed back in episode four, all frontline villages on the Somme in German hands had been turned into fortresses that featured reinforced buildings, bunkers, deep dugouts, and reinforced cellars that were very frequently interconnected for quick reinforcement. The dominating land feature in this area is known as Pozier Ridge, named after Pozier Village. The ridge had four spurs running from it, knuckles of high ground that were naturally all controlled by the Germans. From the south, the four spurs were as follows. Fricor Spur and La Boiselle Spur, with Sausage Valley, the low ground in between. La Boiselle and then Ovier Spur, with Mash Valley in between. And Ovier Spur and then Tipfal Spur, with Nab Valley in between. The villages were all fortresses now and leveled by the week-long bombardment. The rubble, however, rather than hinder the Germans, actually added another layer of protection over cellars and dugouts. Sausage, Mash, and Nab valleys were well-sighted kill zones above which the German Frontkämpfer had put several machine guns in order to get interlocked firing sectors. They'd had two years to think this out, remember. South of La Boiselle and behind the front-line trenches, Schwabenho and Sausage Redoubts supported defense of the area. Behind them, in the second position running from Mouquet Farm, also known as Mouquet Farm to British troops, and Bazantin Les Petits Village were more fortified trenches and smaller redoubts. Facing La Boiselle and its salient that pushed into Allied lines was the 3rd Corps, consisting of the British 34th Division, which was tasked with taking La Boiselle, Sausage, and Mash valleys, and to the north, the 8th Division, which would take Ovier village and the spur it sat on. From there, the two divisions were to seize the main objective of the day, which was the German 2nd Line, running from Contalmaison village to Mouquet Farm. The 34th Division, like the 30th, the 18th, the 50th, and the 21st we've covered already, was one of Lord Kitchener's new army divisions and was packed with PALS battalions. Its 102nd Brigade was made up of the 20th through the 23rd Northumberland Fusiliers, who are known more commonly as the 1st through the 4th Tyneside Scottish Battalions. Thus, the 102nd Brigade was the Tyneside Scottish Brigade. The 103rd Brigade was made up of the 24th through the 27th Northumberland Fusiliers, who recognized themselves as the 1st through the 4th Tyneside Irish. 
Hailing from the Newcastle-upon-Tyne area of northeastern England, these were shining examples of the PALS battalion spirits. These units were ready to go. And here was their chance. In order for the 8th Division on their left to succeed, the 34th had to clear out the La Boiselle salient. Like Free Corps next door, the attack on La Boiselle was to be a pincer move as well. To assist with the rupture of the German front line at the battered and beaten village, British tunnelers primed the Lucknagar mine south of La Boiselle with a whopping 60,000 pounds of ammonal explosive. The Lucknagar mine was aimed at making the Schwabenho redoubt disappear. To the north of La Boiselle lay the Ysap mine, packed with an impressive 41,000 pounds of explosive. Blowing the two mines would help the attacking units flanks by disrupting the Germans' thought patterns for a few moments after their world literally exploded. The mine explosions would also throw up tall earthen berms around the crater lips, making an impromptu position behind which attacking Tommies could shelter and fight from. At 7.28 a.m., both the Lochnagar and the Ysap mines were blown. Private Harry Bomber a member of the 10th Lincolnshire's Grimsby Chums Battalion, the only PALS battalion to be named Chums instead of PALS. And noted in Peter Hart's The Somme was with the 101st Brigade in the division south when, quote, the mine went up and the trenches simply rocked like a boat. We seemed to be very close to it and looked in awe as great pieces of earth as big as coal wagons were blasted skywards to hurdle and roll and then start to scream back all around us. A great geyser of mud, chalk, and flame had risen and subsided before our gaze and man had created it. End quote. The Lochnagar mine went up with 60,000 pounds of ammonal having been ignited under the Schwabenho redoubt. I'm going to say that again. 60,000 pounds of explosive. Bro, that's a lot of hate packed into one mine shaft. Second Lieutenant Cecil Lewis an RFC pilot flying above the 34th Division sector at that moment later remarked, Then came the blast when we were looking at the La Boiselle salient. Suddenly, the whole earth heaved up, and from the ground came great cone-shaped lifts of earth up to 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 feet. A moment later, we struck the repercussion wave of the blast, which flung us over right away backwards over on one side away from the blast. This particular explosion must have sounded like the end of the world, and to many, it was. The entire 5th Company of the German Reserve Infantry Regiment 110, the men manning Schwabenho, were blown to kingdom come. If you go on Google Maps and then search out La Boiselle, France, the 270-foot-wide and 70-foot-deep creator lays to the south of the village. It can still be seen today from satellite. But while the explosion was immense, the damage it did was very local. 
the Lochnagar mine claimed only one company's worth of infantry. Other dugouts nearby survived the shock, as did the men inside them. After the flying mountains of dirt crashed back down to earth amidst the smoke, fire, and dust, at 7.30 came the signal. The guns lifted and moved on to their next battle targets. From the south towards Fricourt and on north to Mash Valley north of La Boiselle, the 101st, 102nd, and 103rd Brigades attacked in four columns of troops, each advancing as rapidly as possible over hundreds of meters of no man's land. In 101st Brigade sector, despite the mini apocalypse set off by the Lochnagar mine, the Germans were not surprised. The exploding mine meant the infantry attack was now near at hand, and the sudden cessation of the bombardment on their heads confirmed it. Not only were they not surprised, but they were also not dead. The dugouts and cellars had weathered the week-long bombardment, keeping its inhabitants alive. Reserve Infantry Regiment 110 had suffered plenty during the barrage, but had held itself together. Heavy machine gun fire began to spit out of Sausage Redoubt, the remains of Schwabenhoe and La Boiselle, making Sausage Valley an unbeatable kill zone for the oncoming Tommies. As Oberleutnant Kienitz of the 110th Machine Gun Company noted later, silently the machine guns and the infantrymen waited until our opponents came closer. Then, when they were only a few meters from the trenches, the serried ranks of the enemy were sprayed with a hurricane of defensive fire from the machine guns and the aimed fire of the individual riflemen. The first Edinburgh Pals of the 15th Royal Scots Battalion began to shudder and collapse under the weight of bullets smacking into them. As a result, the men of the battalion staggered out of their divisional sector and into that of the 21st Division to their south. The 10th Lincolns and the Cambridge Pals of the 11th Suffolk to the left of the Scots were chopped up within a few minutes as well, reaching 80% casualties. The Cambridge Pals lost 400 men in minutes. It was chaos. At the Lochnagar Crater, it was even worse. Quote, It was akin to striding into a hailstorm, and the further you went, the less and less became your comrades. Jerry had not been obliterated. His wire had not been destroyed. And we had been called upon to walk eight hundred yards across no man's land into hell, Private Bomber of the Grimsby Chums said later. Soldiers from at least three separate battalions huddled around the enormous lip of the still-smoking crater, but could move nowhere. The Germans had set up on the other side with a machine gun team, and soon other machine guns from the flanks were pouring fire on the Tommies there. Everywhere, Men were falling, tumbling, crying out as bullets punched into their panting and exhausted bodies. A group of Tommies broke through all of the remaining German lines in order to seize Sausage Redoubt. But to add to the horror, these men were burned alive by a waiting flamethrower team. As these men went down writhing 
in terrible flames, the men of the Lincolns and the Cambridge Pals realized they could not get across no man's land. Behind all of that came the Irishmen of the 24th Northumberland Fusiliers, a.k.a. the 1st Tyneside Irish, in support. But they were ordered to stay in the frontline trenches and so couldn't help the mishmash of units that was holding at the then-new Lochnagar Crater. A German infantry company had plugged the hole and their line left when their sister company exploded with the mine and the British could not push past. Later during the night, the survivors would pull back across no man's land. Of the Grimsby chums, the 10th Lincolnshires, it would be found that of a previous roll call of 500, only two officers and roughly 100 men were still standing. No ground had been gained by the 101st Brigade. To the left of the 101st, the 102nd Brigade pushed between the Lochnagar Crater and La Boiselle village as soon as the massive mine sent fat claws of earth and flame towards the summer sky. This was the Tyneside Scottish Brigade, even though the battalions were less than 25% ethnic Scots. Three battalions of Northumberland Fusiliers led the charge into no man's land behind the piercing sounds of bagpipes out front, the 21st, the 22nd, and the 26th. Imagine the courage of those pipers as artillery rained down, machine gun bullets hissed by them, and men collapsed all around them until they too were hit, all under the morning summer sun. They reached the front trench of what was left of Schwabenho. German machine gun teams in La Boiselle put out a devastating fire on them. Despite murderous losses as Tommies fell by the dozen, the German front line was breached and small groups of men managed to reach even the third or reserve line of German trenches. In front of La Boiselle itself, a company of the 18th Northumberland Fusiliers, Tyneside Pioneers, occupied the glory hole craters but could do nothing else. A Major Acklam, the only officer left commanding beyond the German line, reported by a hastily connected telephone wire that he had men in enemy trenches but needed bombs and water desperately. Furious German counterattacks later pushed them back. Just northwest of La Boiselle, along the northern edge of the salient that pushed into British lines, the 41,000-pound YSAP mine also blew at 7.28 in the morning rocking the battlefield with a mountain of dirt and fire bursting from the German front line. The Tyneside Irish of 103rd Brigade launched themselves down Mash Valley. It was 800 yards here, too, to the enemy trenches. Interlocking machine gun fire from La Boiselle and Ovier Village to the north cut the brigade down. A few men reached the German wire. All of them were killed off by the front Kempfer before them. No ground had been gained by the 102nd Brigade. British casualties in the 34th Division were stunning. Over 5,100 men were killed, wounded, captured, or missing. Mind you, the British Infantry Division at this time was staffed at 10 to 12,000 men, 
All four Tyneside Scottish Battalion commanders in the battlefield that morning were killed. And of them, the bodies of two were never to be recovered. Almost all of the other officers were killed or wounded as well. General Cameron, commander of 103rd Brigade, was shot in the stomach and had to be carried across no man's land. The 20th Battalion Northumberland Fusiliers, aka the 1st Tyneside Scottish, suffered 584 casualties in killed, wounded, and captured. The 4th Tyneside Scottish, the 23rd Battalion, lost 629 men. Both battalions were effectively annihilated on the morning of the 1st of July, and the 102nd Brigade as a whole would be withdrawn from the battlefield shortly. These losses shocked many men to the rear of the battlefront. What was happening up there? An artillery gunner named Frank Spencer had an idea. The dogged courage and high fighting qualities of the enemy machine gunners who had weathered our rain of shells and the breasted and checked the waves of our determined infantry is worthy of admiration. The suggestions one hears that the Germans have not fought well is no compliment to our own gallant troops. Next to the Tyneside Irish of the 103rd Brigade, the men of 8th Division's 23rd Brigade also marched into Mash Valley that morning. They were headed toward Pozier, a village that named the ridge being fought over and that straddled the old Roman road between Albert and Bapome. The 23rd Brigade disintegrated under the same heavy interlocking fire from La Boiselle and Ovier that stopped the Tyneside Irish. 70 men managed to reach the German frontline trenches where they held a section for a few hours before having to beat feet back across the body-strewn and cratered no-man's land. No ground was gained. On the northern flank of the 23rd Brigade was the 25th Brigade, attacking north of ovier la boiselle village. Leading the assault were the 2nd Royal Berkshires and the 2nd Lincolns, who took punishingly heavy fire from the German Infantry Regiment 180 opposite them. Some of the Lincolns stormed and took the first trench line by 7.50 and an hour later made an attack on the support trenches. A battalion of Royal Irish Rifles moved up to support, but heavy machine gun fire mowed them down as they pushed across no man's land. The Lincolns were forced to withdraw under heavy fire. North of 25th Brigade, 8th Division's 3rd Frontline Brigade was the 70th. The Tommies of 70th Brigade had 400 yards, about 365 meters, of no man's land to cover. The first and second waves actually punched right through the first German line and quickly took the second line. But the third and fourth waves of reinforcing infantry, men of the 9th York and Lancasters and 11th Sherwood Foresters, yeah, that Sherwood Forest, took heavy machine gun fire from the Germans on Tietfall Spur to the north. In short order, the Sherwood Foresters covered the ground with their dead and dying, 
the battalion in tatters. A small group attempted to use a sunken country lane in Nab Valley to grenade their way towards Muke Farm, but this was stopped cold as the men approached the German frontline trenches. 70th Brigade achieved nothing, and as a fighting formation, it was shattered. When pressed to renew the attack by 8th Division's commander, Major General Hudson, Brigade Commander Brigadier Gordon is said to have replied, You seem to forget, sir, that there is no 70th Brigade. No ground was gained, despite the 8th Division's horrific casualty count. 8th Division's attack had come apart in the face of determined German defensive fires. Infantry Regiment 180, the German unit defending Ovier-la-Boiselle and its flanks, had lost some 280 men killed and wounded during the artillery bombardment the week before. But they had received intel that the British assault would be coming at 5.45 that morning, and so by 7.30 they were long since ready. During the day's fighting, the regiment lost another 270 men but it gave out a catastrophic 6,380 casualties to the British. It was the most enormous disaster that had befallen the 8th Division. The whole division was ruined, a Royal Berkshire's officer later said bitterly. 8th Division's success had hinged on the 34th Division to its south, succeeding in its own objectives. And as we saw, the 34th was not successful. But 8th Division's success also hinged on the 32nd Division on its left, facing Tietfall's Spur, also being successful. Fate of the 8th Division tells us how the 32nd fared. The 32nd and 36th Ulster Division, facing the Tietfall Spur, along with the 49th West Riding Division in reserve, were part of General Sir Thomas Moreland's 10th Corps. The Corps would be attacking the valley of the River Ancre nearby, and the first objective would be the capture of the Tietfal Spur and Plateau land formations. Once those were seized, the supporting troops were to push through and assault and carry the German second position. It was a plan that was perfect, so long as the 32nd and 36th Divisions could attack perfectly and with no hassles or holdups and strictly according to plan. Because if the 32nd happened to fail, then the 36th Division's flank would be exposed to enfilading fire, and the 8th Division to the south would not be able to succeed, as we just saw. The capture of Tietval would be huge, and it would be a game-changer. If the British could seize it, they would be able to pivot and possibly turn the German flanks and roll up their lines, as well as have control of the dominant high ground for kilometers around. The British Army would have a commanding overwatch position over the Germans, instead of the usual other way around. Tietval itself was now a ruined but fortified village, a mass of brick heaps and shell holes, 
It had been pounded largely out of existence by the relentless artillery barrage to the point where General Rycroft, commander of the 32nd Division, had exclaimed as the ground rumbled under his feet at Evelwy Wood, My God, all we'll find in Teakval when we go across is the caretaker and his dog. But it was supported from the north by the mighty Schwaben Redoubt we discussed back in episode four. Behind the village sat Wundwerk Redoubt, known to Tommies as the Wonderwork. Behind these redoubts and Tiefval itself, the German second position ran across Posier Ridge with the Mouquet Switch trench line and dotted along the way from the south with Mouquet Farm, Goat Redoubt, and Stuff Redoubt. 32nd Division from south to north had two brigades in front, the 97th and the 96th, and the 14th Brigade in reserve. With the 97th, Commanding Brigadier Jardine had the smarts to have his assault troops creep to within 30 to 40 meters of the German wire as the last 10 minutes of artillery and trench mortar shells slammed into the enemy trenches just ahead. As they crept forward, though, a few brave or foolhardy souls, or maybe they were both, kicked a football as they made their way across no man's land. As soon as the guns lifted at 7.30, the men of the 17th Highland Light Infantry, the 3rd Glasgow Pals, known as the Commercials, because they were made up mostly of white-collared workers, rose up and rushed the smoking trenches of Leipzig Redoubt. Before the defending Germans could react, the moppers up were screaming down into their dugouts for them to get out with hands up and tossing down Mills grenades when they were too slow to respond. Having seized Leipzig Redoubt, with smoke in the air and shells howling down, the Glasgow Pals pushed on to the Hindenburgstrasse Trench some 150 meters ahead. But already, the machine gun teams at the Wonderwork Redoubt some 800 meters to the northeast by Tietval began to lay down a murderous rain of bullets. See how the Redoubts work by supporting the trenches? Within minutes... Almost all of the commanding officers were dead, and the entire Company D of the 3rd Glasgow Pals was either dead or wounded on the field. The attack, having shown great promise in its early minutes, stopped cold as men fell under a hail of lead. Tommies from the 2nd King's own Yorkshire Light Infantry, in support, tried to shore up the numbers at the captured trench fort. At 8.30, the reserves were called up to support. But as the 11th Battalion, the Border Regiment, also known as the Lonsdale Pals, answered and moved through Altui Wood well behind the British front line, machine guns from the Nordwerk Redoubt, directly east, and an 8th Division sector chopped them up mercilessly. The Lonsdales kept pushing forward, and a few made it to Leipzig Redoubt but over 500 of the 800 men who pushed forward that day fell on the field, including their battalion commander. On 97th Brigade's left, the 2nd Glasgow Pals, the 16th Highland Light Infantry for the record, and the 2nd King's Own, 
just mentioned, found themselves stuck in no man's land with uncut barbed wire up ahead and heavy fire cutting into them from the ruins of Tietval Chateau. To the north of Leipzig Redoubt and facing Tietval itself in 96th Brigade Sector, the Newcastle Commercial Pals and 1st Salford Pals, each known officially and respectively as the 16th Northumberland Fusiliers and the 15th Lancashire Fusiliers, attacked, kicking a football out ahead of them as well. As they headed across no man's land, the Germans sighted them down with heavy machine gun fire. As soon as we got into no man's land, the Germans opened fire with their heavy machine guns, Sergeant Bill Dutton of the 1st Salford Pals later said. We dropped like nine pins. I was the same as everyone else. I dropped into a shell hole. One officer realized how futile the attack was and told us to stay there till nightfall. You were shot down if you made any movement at all. We spent the day in shell holes, talking and swearing. Unable to take the German frontline trenches directly ahead, the few Newcastle and Salford men still unhurt made it into the enemy frontline to the north of Tietval, where they battled with German troops coming out of dugouts behind them. A few survivors here kept moving north until they managed to link up with the men of the neighboring 36th Ulster Division in the Schwaben Redoubt area later in the day. Both battalions suffered heavily and gained no ground. Two battalions moved up to reinforce the Newcastles and Salfords, the 2nd Salfords and the 2nd Royal Inniskilling Fusiliers. They too were stopped by an impenetrable wall of machine gun fire. Attempts to reinforce and renew the attack with men of the 14th Brigade and Reserve were brutally cut down as men of the 1st Dorsets, 2nd Royal Inniskilling Fusiliers, and 2nd Manchesters tried to make it across the body-strewn no-man's land. A few Inniskilling men made it to Leipzig Redoubt, as well as a good part of the 2nd Manchesters. 32nd Division's attack was also floundering. Other than the seizure of the Leipzig Redoubt, whose hold was tenuous as Germans popped out of previously cleared dugouts to battle the earth fort's new occupiers, it had gained nothing but a catastrophic casualty count. This was not going to help the 36th Division's prospects of success. North of the 32nd, the 36th Ulster Division was having some success, though. Its 109th Brigade had pushed right through the German trenches to a reserve trench line 500 yards past the mighty Schwaben Redoubt, one mile in and bypassing Tietval village. Lieutenant Colonel Ambrose Ricardo, commander of the 9th Royal Inniskilling Fusiliers, had noted how the men passed him as he watched. They got through without delay, no fuss, no shouting, no running, everything solid and thorough, just like the men themselves. The Irishmen of the Ulster Division attacked in wave after wave. By 8.30, the 9th and 10th Royal Inniskilling Fusiliers had reached the Muke switch line and the eastern part of Schwaben Redoubt. To the left of 109th Brigade, the 11th Royal Irish Rifles of the 108th Brigade used a smokescreen 
to burst through the enemy trenches to the Hansa trench line, well behind Schwaben Redoubt. The rest of the brigade, straddling the valley of the river Ancre, was stopped by heavy enfilading machine gun fire coming from the village of Saint-Pierre-de-Vion. Having 600 yards of no man's land to cross, members of the 9th and 12th Royal Irish Rifles took punishing casualties as they moved to seize the enemy's front line. Supporting troops from the 107th Brigade moved up, but they too saw men collapse by the dozen as they crossed no man's land under heavy fire. These supporting troops then somehow walked into a British artillery barrage, and as they hit the ground, they came under enemy machine gun fire. Troops from the 49th Division in reserve were called forward to help, and two companies of West Yorkshire men eventually took some German trenches northwest of Schwaben Redoubt. But Tietfall Village and the spur of ground it sat on had not been taken, not even close. By midday, the defending German 99th Reserve Infantry Regiment and 180th Infantry Regiment had recovered sufficiently from the shock of the morning's attack, and now they launched their counterattacks as they watched the British falter. Around 5 p.m., the Germans counterattacked the British troops holding the Leipzig redoubt just south of Tietval. There was no talk amongst the British mishmash of units there about advancing any further forward. Now it was going to be the devil to hold on to what they'd achieved at such high cost. The Germans opened up on known British positions within their front line with any and all available artillery. The Tommies in Leipzig struggled to hold on, and as German infantry got closer and closer, the fight turned ugly as only it could. The men of two different empires, two different ways of life, and two different worldviews clashed. The nature of the Leipzig defenses, a maze of trenches and underground saps, made advancing into the salient extremely hard. One was continually attacked in the rear. What seemed dugouts were bombed, and when passed, numbers of the enemy rushed from them, they being really underground communications with their rear defenses. The whole fighting was of a cold, deliberate, merciless nature. No quarter was given or taken. So said Private Bentley Meadows of the 3rd Glasgow Pals. It was at Leipzig Redoubt that the body of German Private Eversmann, who was quoted in Episode 5, would be found after one of the counterattacks. His diary was found when Tommies searched the dead for souvenirs. As July 1st came to a close in 32nd Division Sector, Leipzig Redoubt remained tenuously in British hands, and no other gains had been made. The division had lost 3,949 men, over one-third of its strength. North of Tietval, a massive penetration had been made into the German positions. The local division commander, Major General von Soden of the German 26th Reserve Division, stated, The Englishman still sits in Schwaben Redoubt. He must be driven out of it 
out of our position. The attack is to be pushed with all energy. It is a point of honor for the division to recapture this important point today. The artillery is to cooperate with all possible strength. The German artillery did cooperate. It pounded Schwaben Redoubt, working it over from one end to the other. The Germans used their defensive fire zones to accurately call down shells on pre-planned areas. After the artillery ceased, three separate battle groups of German soldiers counterattacked the redoubt. Now it was the Germans' turn to learn about attacking and dreadful losses. British artillery was called for and it now reigned in and around Schwaben, scattering the counterattacks. As night fell on July 1st, the situation at the trench fort was confusing, with no one knowing who was in possession. But with each new counterattack, the Germans came closer and closer, and the defending Irishmen found themselves with less men and even less ammunition. Panic set in, even though a lieutenant colonel was on the scene to help lead the defense. As the men of the Bavarian Reserve Infantry Regiment 8 broke into the redoubt, some groups of Tommies began to melt away. It was only by the threat of, and actual, shooting of deserters that young officers convinced their men to stay and fight it out. The Germans were also paying a heavy price in men, but they seemed ready for it. At 10 p.m., artillery opened up again on the redoubt, and a new attack went in an hour later. This time they broke through, and the men of the 36th Division ran like hell in the dark for their front lines. With the explosions of shells and flares, the Germans mowed down the exhausted Irishmen as they ran amongst bodies and shell holes. 700 dead of the 36th were left at Schwaben. Schwaben Redoubt was lost to the British. And with that, all gains by the 36th were lost. The Ulster Division lost 5,104 men that day. In 8th Corps sector, to the left of the 36th, the day was even worse. From south to north, the Corps was made up of two regular divisions, the 29th and the 4th and the new army 31st division that was made up mostly of PALS units. General Aylmer Hunter Weston commanded the Corps, his first job since being evac'd from Jolly Polly the year before for severe sunstroke and signs of shell shock, the former reason probably covering for the latter. Hunter Weston had gained a reputation at Gallipoli as an unimaginative general who was not overly concerned by casualties, as Peter Hart puts it in his book, The Psalm, Darkest Hour on the Western Front. So, the 29th and 4th Divisions were to attack across the valley where the village of beaumont Amel lay, then pushing on to take the Bocor Spur where the German 2nd position lay. Both divisions both stocked with veteran Tommies of both Gallipoli and service in the Empire abroad, recognized they'd be attacking into a bowl, with the Germans holding all of the high ground ahead of them. The 29th was assigned the capture of Hawthorne Ridge, 
where the Hawthorne Redoubt sat, and of Beaumont Amel. There was no cover in their sector except for a sunken country road at the left of their part of the line. Three tunnels had been dug by engineers under no man's land to help with the attack. Two tunnels would be opened at the German-facing end for mortar teams to plaster the enemy, and a third would be an instant communication trench to ease troop movements. Engineers had also dug a mine under the Hawthorne Redoubt, and it was now packed with 20 tons of ammonal. The mine was to be blown at 7.20 in the morning, the result of a stupid compromise that served no one. Hunter Weston had wanted to send the mine up at 0330 and seize it then, but the local army mine inspector had overruled him with 0730, and thus they agreed to 0720. 0720 was dumb, because the mine detonation would be the clear sign to the Germans that an attack was now underway. But off it went, like an acutely local earthquake at 7.20, and its explosion was caught on camera by Jeffrey Mallins as he filmed the very first blockbuster film ever, The Battle of the Somme. The film is silent, but even with the lack of sound, the explosion of the Hawthorne mine is an impressive sight. A mountain of earth blew hundreds of meters into the air, sending a snow shower of white chalk back down. Immediately, two platoons of the 2nd Royal Fusiliers stormed across no man's land to seize the 50 meter wide and 15 meter deep crater. They made it but had to drop down as the Germans were already on the other side of the smoking hole in the earth. Here's where the whole 8th Corps went wrong. With the explosion of the mine at 7.20, the British artillery lifted and shifted forward 100 meters instead of the ordered 50. The brigade commanders had apparently requested 100-yard lifts with the artillery, but what this meant was that artillery was, was now no longer raining down on the German front lines. To the men in those front lines, that meant the hour had finally come after seven impossibly long days. Showtime. As an unknown German officer of Infantry Regiment 119 reported, there was a terrific explosion, which for the moment completely drowned the thunder of the artillery. A great cloud of smoke rose from the trenches of Number 9 Company, followed by a tremendous shower of stones, which seemed to fall from the sky all over our position. This explosion was the signal for the infantry attack, and everyone got ready and stood on the lower steps of the dugouts, rifles in hand, waiting for the bombardment to lift. In a few minutes, the shelling ceased, and we rushed up the steps and out into the crater positions. Ahead of us, wave after wave of British troops were crawling out of their trenches and coming forward towards us at a walk, their bayonets glistening in the sun. 87th and 86th Brigades of 29th Division attacked at 7.30 and were massacred. As Tommies climbed out of their trenches and out into their own wire, German machine guns began to cut into their ranks. They cut deeply, as they had won the race to the parapet and were ready to defend their line. 
German artillery began to pound the British front line. They had withheld fire all the previous week to hide their positions, and now they were bringing fire down on those pre-planned defensive fire zones. British gunners had not dedicated many of the bombardment's resources towards counter-battery fire as the French had stressed, and now they were paying for it. Most of the soldiers in the attacking British brigades were mown down in neat waves. Most of the division never made it across no man's land. How could they? The Germans were on the high ground, and they'd been tipped off by the untimely explosion of the Hawthorne mine. Any men who did reach the German wire found it largely uncut. Groups of survivors out in no man's land scrambled for the sunken lane to the left, where a new attack was hatched and launched. This, too, was stopped. Machine gun fire was coming from everywhere behind the German front line. It was coming from beaumont Amel's ruins. It was coming from Serre to the north and from Ridge Redoubt on the German front line. From whatever direction it came from, it was hitting its targets. British soldiers. Platoons, companies, and battalions were wiped out in minutes. That the fire was coming from other villages under attack meant that those attacks must not be faring well, nor keeping the Germans rooted to their immediate front. They had time to turn and support their comrades to their left or right. In all of the noise, the shelling, the rifle fire, the tack-tack-tack of machine guns amidst the screaming of wounded men, and movement there was confusion. 29th Division officers behind the lines were desperate for news, and reports from the ground and from pilots up above reported progress that the German line had been breached. Divisional reserves were told to go in. The 1st Newfoundland Regiment and 1st Battalion Essex Regiment began their assaults. It's about to get really tragic, so let's get the background really quick. The 1st Newfoundland Regiment hails from Newfoundland, Canada. Veterans of Gallipoli, the regiment had been raised after the outbreak of war and assigned to a British division as Newfoundland was not yet a part of Canada at the time. It was a dominion of the empire with a population of about a quarter of a million people at the outbreak of World War I. Because the front line and communication trenches were clogged full of the dead and the dying, the 1st Newfoundland's commander, Lieutenant Colonel Arthur Haddow, made a decision to begin the assault from behind the British front line. Lieutenant Colonel Haddow raised his walking stick to signal the attack was on. It began at around 9.05 that morning, and the Newfoundlanders were silhouetted against the sky as they traversed the ground above their trenches. Machine gun fire from the other side of no man's land began mowing them down like so much tall grass. The Germans made short work of Newfoundland's sons. Many died before even reaching their own wire. Any who got past had to face incoming German artillery. It was over in minutes. Like that, 710 out of 800 Newfoundland men were killed or wounded. Like that, 
a relatively small community was soon to be shattered from the deaths of 300 of its sons, husbands, and fathers, all on one single day in a span of really a few minutes. To this day, in July, when Canadians celebrate Canada Day, Newfoundland celebrates its long-lost heroes of the 1st of July, 1916, by observing Memorial Day. 1st Battalion Essex Regiment suffered a similar fate. German counterattacks began in the afternoon, and under heavy fire, the Hawthorne Mine men had to withdraw under particularly awful machine gun fire. The men remaining in the sunken road left a few others out there as a listening post, the rest scrambling, falling, running, and zigzagging across no man's land to make it back to relative safety. At the end of the day, 29th Division's attack had had no effect on the German wire. The division had gained nothing and had lost a stunning 5,240 men killed or wounded that one July day. North of beaumont Amel, 4th Division fared little better. All three of its brigades, the 10th, 11th, and 12th, attacked at 7.30, but immediately began taking heavy enfilading fire from the Radon Ridge. Between 11th and 12th Brigade sectors lay an indefensible German redoubt called Heidenkopf. To the British, it was known as the Quadrilateral. The Germans knew that come a determined British attack, the Heidenkopf, which jutted out into no man's land like a sore thumb with shoot me written on it, would fall. So they tried to make the best of the situation and booby trap the whole place, so that when the Tommies did rush in, they could just be blown sky high by a German mine. The determined British attack came that morning, and the German engineers and machine gun crew and the Heidenkopf decided now was the time to pull out and blow the place. Explosives underground were lit, and they went off too soon. The Germans and the Heidenkopf were the ones to be blown to bits. The oncoming British troops, those who'd survived thus far, used the smoke and confusion at the redoubt to pour into the German lines. Heidenkopf was seized. Everywhere else, though, 4th Division's attack was collapsing by mid-morning. A few men of the 1st Somerset Light Infantry broke through the German lines and reached Festesoden, directly east of Heidenkopf, and a few more reportedly reached Pending Kops, past the German reserve trenches. But the Germans started launching counterattacks once they sensed they had the attacks under control. On the 4th Division side, the leadership could see the attacks were floundering under the rain of shells and bullets. Any soldiers who could crawled their way over to Heidenkopf Redoubt as the Germans blasted the battlefield with artillery. As the day progressed, any British troops past the captured redoubt were either killed, captured, or pushed back to the defensive position. Enfilading fire was now coming at the Tommies from Beaumont Amel, Serre, and Ridge Redoubt to the south. With the divisions on either side having failed to seize their objectives, the men of the 4th Division were straining ever more to hold off the counterattacks that just kept on coming. The Germans, too, 
were now to start their hemorrhaging of men, as they were under strict orders from von Falkenhayn himself that any position lost must be retaken at once. Under desperate pressure, the Heidenkopf redoubt was abandoned in the early hours of July 2nd. The survivors came back to their original front lines, having ultimately gained no ground at all. In the 11th Brigade, all of the commanding officers, from Brigade Commander Brigadier Prowse on down, had been killed that day. 4th Division lay exhausted in its sector, having bled out 5,752 men killed, wounded, missing, and captured. No ground gained at all. 4th Division's left flank, that is, shouldering against it to the north, was the 31st Division, facing the German lines in front of Serre village. The 31st stood out as a new army unit because it was not only made up mostly of PALS battalions, but because the PALS battalions hailed from northern England. Two brigades would assault Serre Ridge and Village, and they were to grab both. These brigades were the 93rd and the 94th with the 92nd Brigade in reserve, north of La Signy Farm in the rear. The 94th Brigade was on the division's left, and was thus the northernmost attacking unit of the British 4th Army. Because of that, Brigade Commander Brigadier Hubert Conway Rees had a problem, and a mounting sense of dread as 7.30 approached. His brigade was the very left edge of the attacking 4th Army. To his left lay the 48th Division, which was not attacking. Beyond the 48th, the 56th and 46th Divisions of the British 3rd Army were positioned around the Gomcourt salient, ready to go and be the diversion for 4th Army's attack. That was all good, but they were two miles up the trench line. Next door, the 48th Division hadn't been told to do anything. Reese was appalled. No, no effort being made for the 48th Division at least look like doing something being on the attack. attack. Artillery was blasting the German infantry regiment 66 across from its trenches, trying to cut its wire, and there were no false attack signs like the digging of trenches into no man's land, or increased local activity to throw the enemy's perceptions off. When the bombardment lifted on Serre, the men of Infantry Regiment 66 would know they weren't being attacked. They would simply have to traverse their machine guns to the south and enfilade the hell out of the attacking Englishmen there. A child could see where the flank of our attack lay to within 10 yards, Reese raged. But his corps commander, General Hunter Weston, and other planners basically told him, Reese, bro, chill out. It's all good, man. Artillery bombardment will take care of everything. Don't stress. The day before the big push, Hunter Weston had told 8,000 men of the 31st Division that the artillery was doing its job and that not even a rat would be left alive in the German trenches. At 7.20 on 1st July 1916, the British bombardment of Serre picked up in intensity just as everywhere else along the line. 
But the Germans replied with a counter barrage of British front lines. Nevertheless, men of the assaulting battalions crept out into no man's land to get as close to the enemy as they could. At 7.30, the bombardment lifted, and it was time for the men of 93rd and 94th Brigades to go over the top. 93rd Brigade's attack was led by the 1st Leeds Pals, followed by the 1st Bradford Pals. 1st Leeds Pals stood up and were scythed down by enemy machine guns before they had even crossed 100 yards. Private Arthur Hollings of the 15th West Yorkshires a.k.a. the First Leeds, later recalled of that July morning, The honor of being first over the lid fell to my platoon, number 13, and another, platoon number 10. Not a man hesitated. In broad daylight last Saturday morning, our lads got the order to advance. No sooner had the first lot got over the parapet than the Germans opened up a terrific bombardment. Big shells and shrapnel in their parapet was packed with Germans exposing themselves waist-high above the top, and they opened fire. They had machine guns every few yards, and it seemed impossible for a square inch of space to be left free from flying metal. In minutes, 13 officers and 300 men of the battalion were dead. Behind the leads came the first Bradfords, and behind them came the 2nd Bradfords and the Durham Pals of the 18th Durham Light Infantry in support. Each unit was ripped apart as they tried desperately to cross no man's land. Still, as always, some men made it across that zone of hellfire and made it to the German front line. There, they found the barbed wire had not been properly cut by the week-long artillery bombardment. There was nowhere to run to. As Ronnie Wilkinson wrote in Pals on the Psalm 1916, with the waves of men seen going down, quote, it was becoming apparent at brigade headquarters that a massacre was taking place, end quote. Runners were sent out to see how far the platoons and companies had advanced, but, quote, there was no actual sign of anybody. They'd all been wiped out, end quote. As in the previous sectors we've covered, a few men of the 1st Bradfords and 1st Durham Pals apparently managed to get through the German wire and all the way to Pending Cops. It didn't last. Those men never returned. 93rd Brigade's attack was indeed a massacre. Within hours of the 2,000 Bradford men in those 1st and 2nd Battalions, 1,700 were killed, wounded, or captured. To the left, the 93rd Brigade was the 94th, and the 94th was the extreme flank of General Sir Henry Rawlinson's 4th Army attack. Out in front leading the attack were the 11th East Lancashires, known to history as the Accrington Pals, and the 12th York and Lancasters, the Sheffield City Battalion. They were going into the attack even as German shells and machine guns raked and plastered their trenches with shells and bullets. At 
The Sheffield and Accrington pals rose out of their trenches and into terrible fire not only from their front, but from Infantry Regiment 66 to the north in 48th Division's sector. The Germans of the 66th, seeing no movement directly in front of them, knew they were safe to engage the attacking Englishmen to their south. Machine gun fire even came from Gomcourt Park way to the north. It was just as Brigadier Reese had said it would be. I saw many men fall back into the trench as they attempted to climb out. Those of us who managed had to walk two yards apart, very slowly, then stop, then walk again, and so on, recounted Lance Corporal Marshall of the Accrington Battalion. We all had to keep in line. Machine gun bullets were sweeping backwards and forwards and hitting the ground around our feet. Shells were bursting everywhere. I had no special feeling of fear except I knew we must all go forward until wounded or killed. There was no going back. End quote. Lieutenant Colonel Rickman, commander of the 11th East Lancashire Accrington Pals, watched in mounting despair as he sent four waves of his beloved men forward to their deaths. These weren't just his soldiers, like so many chess pieces to be moved on a board forward or back. These were his men, men from back home who knew each other from common factories, mines, churches, men's clubs, the like. Now these men were falling in neat but bloody rows amongst the weedy grasses of no man's land. The rightmost company of the Accrington boys broke through the German front line and reportedly made it all the way into Sayre village. No more was ever heard of them. Their buried bodies would be found months later after the German pullback to the Siegfriedstellung. The German defense was coldly ferocious. Machine gun teams traversed their machine guns back and forth across the parade ground ranks of men coming towards them. It wasn't just bad leadership on the part of the British, but also good leadership on the part of the Germans that made the 1st of July, 1916, the day that it was. It was men like Oberleutnant Emil Schweikert of Infantry Regiment 169, opposite the Accrington Pals at Serre, who, while wounded in the head by artillery fragments, quote, stood high on the side of the trench, half bandaged with a naked upper body and heavily blooded bandages, leading the firing and encouraging his company. End quote. It was also men like Unteroffizier Otto Leis, also of the 169th, and his men who made the day so costly for their British enemies. His account follows. The sun shines brightly. It is the 1st of July, 1916. In the splendor of this summer's day, the English columns advance to the attack. They have the certainty that their week-long drum fire, precisely calculated to the square meter, has destroyed every atom of life in our position. The enemy's artillery fire suddenly transfers to our rear positions, onto the grounds of Serre village, onto the approach roads and the villages beyond. 250 to 400 meters away from our destroyed trenches, they advanced to the attack. 
They advance in columns, in thick, packed lines of attack, behind which are drawn up support troops, Indian lancers, ready to turn the English breakthrough on the wing of the attack front into a devastating defeat of our center. The English infantry have their rifles at their necks, hanging from their shoulders, ready for the stroll to Bopome, to Cambrai, to the Rhine. But now men crawl out of half-crushed dugouts. Now men squeeze through shot-through tunnels, through buried dugout entrances, through broken, shattered timber frames. Now they rise up between the dead and dying and call and cry out, Get out! Get out! It's the attack! They're coming! The sentries, who had to remain outside throughout the drum fire, rise out of the shell holes. Dust and dirt lie a centimeter thick on their faces and uniforms. Their cry of warning rings piercingly in the narrow gaps that form the dugout entrance. Get out! Get out! They're coming! Now men rush to the surface and throw themselves into shell holes and craters. Now they fling themselves in readiness at the crater's rim. Now they rush forward under cover from the former second and third lines and place themselves in the first line of defense. Hand grenades are being hauled by the box from shell hole to shell hole. Shots flew, whipped and cracked wildly into the enemy ranks. Above us, it hissed, whizzed and roared like a storm, like a hurricane. The path of the English shells which fell on what little artillery was left on the support troops, on the rear areas. Amidst all the roar, the clatter, the rumble and the bursts, the lashing out and wild firing of the riflemen. The firm, regular beat of our machine guns is solid and calm. Tack, 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 tack. This one slower. This, this one faster in rhythm. Precision work in materials and construction. A terrible melody to the enemy. It gives a greater degree of security and inner calm to our friends in the infantry and to the other ranks. One belt after another is raced through. 250 shots, 1,000 shots, 3,000 shots. Bring up the spare gun barrels, shouts the gun commander. The gun barrels changed. Carry on shooting, 5,000 shots. The gun barrel has to be changed again. The barrel's scorching hot, the coolant's boiling. The gunner's hands are nearly scorched, scalded. Carry on shooting, urges the gun commander, or be shot yourself. The enemy's getting closer. We keep up our continuous fire. The steam dies away. Again, the barrel needs changing. The coolant's nearly all vaporized. Where's their water? shouts the gun layer. There's soda water. Iron rations from the dugout, down below. There's none there, Corporal. The iron rations were all used up in the week-long bombardment. Still, the English attack. Even though they already lie shot down in their hundreds in front of our lines, fresh waves continue to pour over from their jumping off positions. We have to shoot. A gunner grabs the water can, jumps down into the shell hole, and relieves himself. A second then also pisses into the water can. It's quickly filled. The English are already in hand grenade range. Grenades fly to and fro. The barrel's been changed, the gun jacket filled, load. Hand grenades and rifle grenades explode violently in front of the gun. It's not just unsettling. The loading gets into a tangle. You recite loudly, slowly, 
and clearly saying to yourself, forward, feed, back. Knock the caulking handle forward, feed in the belt, throw back the caulking handle. The same again, safety catch to the right, feed through, tack tack, tack tack. A furious sustained fire once more strikes the cockies in front of us. Tall columns of steam rise from almost all the machine guns. The steam hoses of most guns are torn off or shot away. The skin of the gunners, of the gun commanders, hangs in shreds from their fingers. Their hands are scalded. The left thumbs reduced to a swollen, shapeless piece of meat from continually pressing the safety catch. The hands grip the lightweight, thin gun handles as if locked in a seizure. 18,000 shots. The platoon's other machine gun jams. The gunner is shot in the head and falls over the belt that he feeds in. The belt's displaced, taking the cartridges at an angle into the feeder where they become stuck. Another gunner takes over. The dead man's laid to one side. The gun layer takes out the feeder, removes the cartridges, and reloads. Shooting. Nothing but shooting. Barrel changing. Hauling ammunition and laying out the dead and wounded in the bottom of the trench. Such is the harsh and furious pace of the morning of 1st July 1916. The harsh, clear report of the machine guns is heard on every division front. England's youth, Scotland's best regiments, bled to death in front of Sayre. Unteroffizier Otto Leis didn't realize his enemies coming at him weren't Scottish. Again, they were all Englishmen. By 7.50, Lieutenant Colonel Rickman already knew and reported that his battalion's attack had failed. By day's end, he would know that of 720 men of the Accrington Pals, 584 were casualties. 235 were killed outright on the field before Serre. To the left of the Accrington Pals, the last 4th Army unit attacking was the 12th York and Lancasters. The Sheffield City Battalion, too, rose out of their trenches at 7.30 under German bombardment and started dropping to enfilade fire from the north. Lance Corporal Glenn, a signaler with the Sheffield Pals, later wrote, It was a beautiful morning. Then the whistles blew. They all stood up and started to move forward in a straight line. They hadn't gone but a few steps when they all went down again. I thought that they had been tripped by a wire laid across no man's land. But it was soon obvious why. We could hear the machine guns chattering away and all hell broke loose. In mere minutes, the Sheffield Pals lost over 500 men. Two days later, the battalion would report officers' casualties at 15 and other ranks as 468. Of the other ranks, the enlisted and the NCOs, 373 were missing. One of them was John William Streets, known as Will to his family, a budding poet who may have been part of the second wave that went into no man's land. Will was wounded, made his way back to British trenches, and then disappeared. 
He would be listed as missing for seven long months until the 1st of May, 1917, when his remains were found on the Serre battlefield. Behind them came the Barnsley Pals, two battalions, trying to work a covered trench called a Russian sap across no man's land. Despite the heavy machine gun fire coming at them, a sizable group of six platoons reached the German front line this way. By 9.30, these men were gone, having been shot down by the enemy. The Barnsley battalions lost over 500 men amongst them that day. By midday here too, 31st Division's attack was over. No ground had been gained. The division had taken 3,600 casualties during the day. And during the afternoon and night, men stuck in no man's land crawled and scraped their way back across other dead and wounded to get back to their own lines. It was a scene of horror, as a 16-year-old soldier named Frank Lindley later recalled. One bloke must have been climbing out of the trench, and it had done him across the middle. It left his feet and bottom half in the trench, and all his insides were hanging down the trench wall. I remember thinking, so that's what a human liver and kidneys look like. It's funny what you think at times like that. In the fog of war, that morning reports came in that the attack at Gomcourt had been successful and that Serre village had been taken. But Brigadier Rees knew it was BS. The 31st Division Commander, General Wanless Ogawan, learned the truth later in the afternoon. The shattered units of the 93rd and 94th Brigades slid back into their own blasted trenches, now too weak to even hold their own starting line effectively. Commanders now worried about German attacks taking British trenches. At Gomcourt, past the 48th Division and into the British 3rd Army sector, the great diversionary attack went in at the same time as the 4th Army's attack did. The job here was for two divisions, the 56th and the 46th, to pinch out the Gomcourt salient and attract the wrath of the German army in doing so. They had made very visible preparations for the attack. We'll take a bird's eye view here as the story is much the same as what we've covered this episode already. A smoke screen was released from British lines ostensibly to help with the attack, but it would only serve to confuse the attacking battalions. To make things worse, the Germans had gone out the night before to repair the shell-torn wire, and to Gumcourt it was 50 meters thick. On top of all that, British artillery had failed to give the attention required to counter battery fire against German guns. The 56th London Division launched its attack on the southern half of the Gomcourt salient with its 168th and 169th Brigades. The Tommies of these two brigades did find the enemy wire was fairly well cut, and they stormed into the 1st and 2nd German trench lines. They kept pushing forward, taking the 3rd line with a fight. The Germans at Gomcourt Men of the 170th and 99th Infantry Regiments 
replied with a devastating artillery barrage on the British front line that cut off the morning's attackers. Attempts by the British to reinforce the gains were mowed down like corn in no man's land. German infantry counterattacks then began with brutal effect. By 2 p.m., the third line had been evacuated. Two hours later, the captured German second line was retaken by the enemy. And by 9.30 that night, the shattered remnants of the 56 attacking brigades gave up the German frontline trench as well. To the north, 46th Division sent its 137th and 139th Brigades into the smokescreen, where the men of the 137th lost their way. No Man's Land had been thoroughly plowed by the previous week's artillery bombardment, so it was rough going through the smoke. Then the Tommies reached the newly repaired wire, where they were lit up by rifle fire and grenades. Behind them, the Germans dropped a fierce artillery barrage that cut off any chance of reinforcement. The men of the 139th managed to break into the German front line despite heavy machine gun fire. Once the British barrage lifted, however, the Germans swarmed out of their dugouts to attack the occupying Tommies. Desperate fighting ensued as the British troops in the enemy trenches found themselves on their own. New attack plans to relieve them had to be dropped. During the evening, only a handful of survivors made their way back to British trenches. The Germans had been ready, and they had won the battle with their artillery. Neither the 56th nor the 46th Divisions gained any ground that day. 56th London Division found itself with a gut-wrenching 4,300 casualties and the 46th Division with 2,455. Nearly 7,000 men had been shot or shelled before the German lines at Gumcor and not an inch of ground was recaptured. As far as being a diversion, Gumcor was a failure as well. As we saw at the Serre fight, that machine gun team from Gumcor lent assistance by enfilading the men of the 31st Division. And thus, we come to the end of the first day of the Battle of the Somme. Of this first day, we know that the British Expeditionary Force took a staggering 57,470 men killed, wounded, missing, or captured. Of this figure, 19,240 men alone were killed outright, a number that defies description and, frankly, understanding. To this day, 100 years and some change later, it still stands as the worst day in the history of British arms. An army two years in the making and 10 minutes in the destroying, as the saying goes. In comparison, General Foch informed General Haig that the French 6th Army had taken 1,500 casualties that day, 1,500. The German 2nd Army 
lost around 6,000 men in its defense of its line. But none of this was known at the time, or at least not to its true extent. General Sir Douglas Haig, commander of the British Army in France and Flanders, summed up the day as he saw it in his diary that day. Reports up to 8 a.m. seemed most satisfactory. Our troops everywhere had crossed the enemy's front trenches. By 9 a.m. I heard that our troops had in many places reached the 120 line. This was the line where everyone should be one hour and 20 minutes after 7.30. We hold the Montauban, Mamet, Spur, and the villages of those names. The enemy are still in Fricourt, but we are around his flank on the north and close to Contalmaison. Ovier and Tipval villages have held our troops up, but our men are in the Schwaben Redoubt, which crowns the ridge of the last named village. The enemy counterattacked here, but were driven back. He, however, is holding on to positions with a few men in the river valley. North of the Ancre, the 8th Division Corps commander said that they began well, but as the day progressed, their troops were forced back into the German front line. except two battalions which occupied Serre village and were, it is said, cut off. I am inclined to believe from further reports that few of 8th Corps left their trenches. The attack on Gomcourt salient started well, especially the 56th Division under General Hull. The 46th Division attacked from the north side but was soon held up. This attack was of the greatest assistance in helping 8th Corps because many of the enemy's guns and troops were employed against it, and so 8th Corps was left considerably free. In spite of this, the 8th Corps achieved very little. Haig went on to add that what he believed to be the total BEF casualty count for the day, 40,000, quote, cannot be considered severe in view of the numbers engaged and the length of front attacked, end quote. 40,000 was the rough number he had at the end of the day on 1st July. And that was out of some 120,000 men in the battle zone taking part in operations against the German 2nd Army. That's already one out of three. And when the number went to 60,000, it really made it a one out of two ratio. As Wilkinson writes, though, but it is doubtful that the more accurate figure of 58,000, a third of them dead, would have changed Haig's opinion. As night descended on the Somme battlefield, mercifully or unmercifully, it was hard to tell. Battle sounds continued. The scream and roar of shellfire stuttering of machine guns, and the crack of single rifle shots all along the attack front. Among those terrifying and terrifyingly mundane sounds, there was an undercurrent that wove and threaded its way through and around all of the other sounds. A sound like enormous wet fingers screeching across an enormous pane of glass. 
as Lynn McDonald put it in her book, Psalm, the sound was coming from the wounded, lying out in no man's land. Some screaming, some muttering, some weeping with fear, some calling for help, shouting in delirium, groaning with pain, the sounds of their distress had synthesized into one unearthly wail. Okay, so it's entirely reasonable if at this point you need a drink. I hear you. We'll end it there for this episode. This was the 1st of July, 1916, that has so indelibly branded itself into the British memory of the First World War. But July 1st was only the first day of what would become a 141-day grind. Next time, we'll start that slow, painful grind through the Somme battlefield and its events. If... You have enjoyed the podcast so far. Please consider re- reviewing it on iTunes. The more reviews, the more visible the podcast becomes, and that helps get more and more folks involved. Also, if you would like to help support the podcast with a financial contribution to help run and maintain it, there is a PayPal button right on the website where you can make a donation of your choice. The website is firstworldwarpodcast.com. Again, I'd like to thank everyone who has already contributed both a review and a financial donation. Thank you so, so much. All right. Any questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com or hit me up through the website, firstworldwarpodcast.com or Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. As always, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the BFWWP. Talk to you again soon, folks. Take care.